you would please stand for the reading of the word. We are in John chapter 7, starting in verse 25 through 36. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to come, uh, then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, we pick up where we left off three weeks ago. Uh, I want to thank Pastor Kevin for taking us through the first seven psalms. And I speak on behalf of all of us when I say we're looking forward to next week when you start us in the book of Daniel. Now, as you're smiling, I realize when I wrote this this morning that there's a couple ways that can be taken. Like, thank you, Lord, he's done the psalms. Can we please move on to Daniel? That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying thank you for the Psalms, and I am extremely excited about moving into Daniel next week. Is that right? No pressure. No pressure. I think I might even wrote that in here. No pressure. Uh, we're back in chapter 7 in John. We're still at the Feast of Booze, and uh, the 12 verses we're going to cover today are quite heavy. I was really, really tempted to split this sermon into three sermons, um, but I don't want to test your patience. And so we still have a long ways to go in John, and I'd like to think that I'll have uh, John close to wrapped up by the time Kevin's done Daniel. However, I think that's likely wishful thinking on my part. So without further ado, let's look at the text. It starts off in verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? You see, as opposed to the out-of-towners who were confused by Jesus' claim that the Jewish leaders were trying to kill him and accused him of being possessed by a demon for thinking such silly things, John here allows us, the readers, to know that those who were from Jerusalem knew all too well what the plans of the Jewish leaders were. And, in fact, they were trying to kill him. Uh, they hadn't hid that fact from them while Jesus was away in Galilee. The, the Jerusalemites knew all about it. 
Upon the return of Jesus to Jerusalem for the feast, they knew that Jesus' life was in danger. So we have Jesus in the temple, and he's teaching as he is wont to do, uh, saying more outrageous things, of course, uh, such as accusing the Jewish leaders of not knowing God, not following the will of God, seeking their own glory, not following the law of Moses, etc., etc. All these nice, warm, fuzzy things that he's, he's telling the, uh, the, the authorities of Jerusalem. To top it all off, as you may remember, Jesus backed them into a corner regarding the Jewish Sabbath laws versus the circumcision law. He accuses them of judging poorly regarding Jesus healing a man on the Sabbath. Now, as you can imagine, those that knew the plan to kill Jesus are there in the temple, and they're listening to the back and forth, knowing that this is Jesus, this is the man they want to kill, and yet they ask the question, wait a minute, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Well, what's the deal? They continue. Here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Verse 26. First thing I want you to notice is that Jesus knows full well that the authorities are seeking to kill him. Yet, here he is, in the temple, preaching and teaching. Now, simple question. What do you need in order to do such a thing under such circumstances? Courage. That's a good word. Boldness. Yes? Right? This requires a trust in God. This requires a knowledge of God and a level of obedience that surpasses that of natural fear of man. Church history is replete with men and women of God who went to their deaths knowing full well that their obedience to Christ would cost them everything, and yet what did they do? They went anyways, right? I'm wondering if you may remember our brother in Christ, John Allen Chow. Do you remember John Allen Chow? John Allen Chow died at the very hands of the people he was trying to bring the gospel to as early as November 17th, 2019. This isolated people were on a tiny island in the Indian Ocean. You may recall now. His father, John's father, blamed extreme Christianity and the American missionary movement for his son's death. He wanted someone to pay and he blamed extreme Christianity and the American missionary movement for it. When the story broke, there were many who rejoiced at his death. Not because of the boldness of his actions, not for his love for Christ and the gospel, not for the love of the people who, who he was trying to save through the preaching of the gospel, but because he dared enter a hostile land to convert a people to Christianity. Good riddance was the attitude. He got what he deserved, were some of the comments. Brother Chow, Brother John Chow, knew what he was doing. He knew the risks. You see, this tribe had a reputation of being extremely hostile to outsiders. 
the surrounding countries who tried to lay claim to the island, they gave up, including India. Because every time they sent people to the island, they were killed. This was a well-known island. People knew about it. This was a very isolated island with very hostile people. As Christians, we rejoice at his sacrifice. Why? We rejoice in his sacrifice because he died in obedience to God. He died doing that which demonstrated his love for a lost people. He died doing that which demonstrated his love for Christ. See, he died a martyr, a hero of the faith, and is now in the presence of the glory of Jesus Christ himself, where Christ wipes away every tear. To live is Christ, and to die is gain, Paul tells us. The second thing I want to draw attention to is the fact that the people of Jerusalem openly question why the authorities aren't carrying out their plans or threats against Jesus. Right? They, they didn't make any... They weren't hiding it. The people of Jerusalem knew all about it. So why weren't they carrying out their threats? He's right, he's right here. He's, he's out in the open, preaching and teaching. So what's the holdup? They aren't challenging him. They aren't moving against him. As far as we can tell, they aren't doing anything. Why? The conclusion as given by John is that there may be some question among the authorities that indeed Jesus may be the Christ after all. Why else would they not be carrying out their plan? Why else would they not be arresting a man who is clearly blaspheming? They wouldn't tolerate this in a normal circumstance, so why are they tolerating it now? The question is, are they having doubts? What's going on? How do you go from, we're going to kill this guy for blasphemy, to doing absolutely nothing? How does one get cold feet in this situation? What are they waiting for? Then they say something that is truly silly and it's, it's actually hard to wrap your minds around. They continue. This is the people talking. But we know where this man comes from and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Verse 27. That seems rather odd. Notice first that while the people from Jerusalem have come to the conclusion that the authorities may be second-guessing their persecution and opinion of the person and work of Jesus, they take hardly a breath to deny that which they believe their leaders are pondering. But we know where this man comes from. Here starts the beginning of their reasoning as to why he cannot be the Messiah. Even if the authorities themselves are considering that very thing, they're already making excuses as to why he can't be. There's little doubt that they believe Jesus is from where? Nazareth. Right? Thereby, being a Nazarite, that makes him a Galilean. But what's the problem? They're wrong. They're just wrong, right? Jesus is not from Nazareth, nor is he a Galilean, but was born in Bethlehem. And, in fact, was of the tribe of Judah. We know that, right? Amazingly, this would not have been overly difficult to find out. 
It, I don't know if you're aware, but the Jews keep very, very good details with regards to family lineages. This would not have been hard to find. They're actually meticulous at it. So this would not have been hard to find. They assumed because Jesus was raised in Nazareth, he must be a Nazarene. But he was not. And that is not how the Jewish people counted their lineage. When Caesar Augustus called for a registration of the people, everyone was to turn to where? Do you remember? They were returned to their hometown. But we know that when the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary to tell her the news of her upcoming pregnancy, where was she? She was in Nazareth, right? When the summons came, Luke 2 tells us that Joseph and Mary had to leave Nazareth to go where? Bethlehem. Why Bethlehem? Because that was his hometown, being of the house and lineage of David. So their first assumption was wrong. And they could have easily figured that out if they only did what I would consider very little digging, little asking around. They would have found out. Their second statement is equally obtuse. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Really? No one will know where he comes from. This is an outrageously inaccurate statement considering Micah 5.2 makes it perfectly clear that Messiah will be born where? In Bethlehem. Right? So where did they get such a crazy idea that no one would know where the Messiah came from? Christianity has long had to battle against heresy and false teaching. The Jews, as we have seen over and over and over again in the Old Testament, were guilty of allowing false teaching into the nation. Right? This is nothing new. There is a record of rabbinic teaching regarding the Messiah appearing, put that in loose quotation marks, being born of flesh and blood, but would be completely unknown until such time that he was to effect Israel's redemption. This was the idea. This could be what is referred to, or what, the, the, we, we really don't know what it's, it's exactly referring to. What we do know is that what is plain in Scripture has been ignored. Micah 5.2 is crystal clear. Likely in favor of popular theories by popular teachers. That never happens here, right? We never, we never jump on some popular teacher's bandwagon and twist Scripture here to make it fit some theory, Right? That doesn't happen in Christianity. Of course it does, right? It happened in Judaism as well. If you will remember the main point of the last sermon, it was... Ten points to whoever gets it right. It was to judge rightly. Right? Judge rightly. And we can see from this group of people from Jerusalem, they've, they've really missed the ball on this one. They are not judging rightly. Their errors are serious and they are compounded. So, what was Jesus' response? You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know, verse 28. See, John tells us at the beginning of verse 28, Jesus proclaimed, which tells us the mood or the intonation of what was being said or how it was being said. What's important here is that this isn't Jesus saying politely, um, pardon me folks, but I'd like to offer a small correction to your assertions. No, 
The Greek word here is kratzo, which means to shout, to cry out, to call out. And, and when you add that to the makeup of the initial sentence, which can be stated, it can be stated one of two ways. It can be stated ironically, or it can be stated as a question. Right? So you get something akin to, oh, oh, really? You know me, eh? If Jesus was Canadian. Right? You know where I come from, do you? Really? You don't know what you're talking about. Jesus takes what little information they think they know and he turns it on them. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true. Jesus here tells them, you don't know me. You don't know me. You don't know the first thing about me. Do you think I'm acting independently? Do you think I'm in this for myself? Acting out of my own will and my own desire? Not at all. I'm acting in conjunction of the will of my Father. I have been commissioned by Him to serve a purpose. Jesus says, He who sent me is true. Now obviously Jesus is once again referring to God the Father. And by inference is once again indicating a special relationship with the Father that had previously been interrupted, or sorry, interpreted as making himself equal with God. That was why they were trying to kill him. Jesus here is doubling down on his claim, but what he means by true in this sense has been contested. Does, does Jesus just mean that the Father is faithful? The, God, the Father is faithful and true? Does he mean that God the Father is ontologically real? Those are the really the two options that have been presented. In this particular context, I lean towards the previous interpretation as Jesus' audience here wouldn't deny the actual existence of God, which makes Jesus' last part especially sting. God the Father is faithful. God the Father is is true. He is indeed the Alpha and the Omega. He is indeed the beginning and the end. He is the one true God as spelled out in the very scriptures that he has graciously given Israel. He is the true God that brought them out of Egypt and fed them in the wilderness. He is the true and faithful God that brought Israel into the promised land and gave them the land of milk and honey. He is the God that defeated Israel's enemies. He is the God who gave them King David, and the greatest king. He gave them King Solomon, the wisest king, the wisest man that ever lived, apart from Christ, of course. He gave them the prophets. He gave them blessings upon blessings. He finally gave them their Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And what does Jesus tell them? And him you do not know. And him you do not know. The Jews were a proud people who often compared themselves to the heathens around them. They knew God. They had the oracles of God. They had the temple. They had inside the temple, they had the Holy of Holies. 
They had the law. They had the scriptures. The Gentiles had nada. They had nothing. Yet Jesus' claim here is that the Jews were as ignorant of God as the Gentiles. And Him you do not know. I know Him, for I come from Him, and He sent me, verse 29. Unlike the Jews who thought they knew God but rejected Jesus, Jesus makes the claim once again that He knows God and came from God and was in fact sent by God. As believers, as those who accept Jesus and know Jesus as our Savior, we, you and I, know God. But even in our privileged, uh, privileged position, we do not know the Father as Jesus knows the Father. We can't. For Jesus is God, one person of the Trinity, who has been in fellowship with the Father and the Spirit for eternity. They are one. Jesus here is contrasting their knowledge of God compared to his own. And he's not, if you can tell, he's not being delicate. There is no question regarding the ramifications of his claims here. So the obvious question then is what was their response? Well, they were seeking to arrest him. But no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Verse 30. We come now to a, another major point that I want to cover today. And this is, one of, this is why I, I was thinking we could do an entire sermon on this one alone. Right? Uh, we, for the next two verses, you could do an entire sermon. But for brevity's sake, I'll have to keep it to a minimum. Notice first, in this verse, we have a reaction to the preaching and teaching of Jesus. Okay? We have, we have a reaction. It says... So they were seeking to arrest him. The so here, the beginning, so, S-O, here is what is called a marker of inference, meaning that what comes after the so was a direct result of what came before it. Okay? Make sense? Jesus is preaching. He's making claims. And because of this, or therefore, they are seeking to arrest him. Whenever Jesus is preached... It draws a reaction. It draws a reaction. Rarely will you get a non-response. Ask those that street preach. Often you will get those that will crowd around or hang around to hear what it is you're saying. Some will heckle. Last time we street preached back in 2015 after the conference that Hill Country had, we went downtown Cochrane and we street preached and what, what, what's the name of the two Muppets up in the, up in the uh, balcony? I always forget their name. There you go. There's a couple of gentlemen up in the, uh, in the Cochrane Hotel there. Up, up, just, it was perfect. They were, they were up there just like the old Muppets. And they were heckling. They were having just a riot. Heckling the street preachers. Right? It happens. So there's heckling. There's... Uh, uh, some scoff, some get angry, some come up to you asking questions, trying to trap you. It happens. Some in our oversensitive times will want the street preacher arrested. We've seen lots of video of that. 
Preaching Jesus today in our context is tantamount to what's called hate speech. Jesus was originally wanted for the capital crime of blasphemy. What is blasphemy? Often when Christians think about blasphemy, we think of taking the Lord's name in vain, right? And that is blasphemy. But blasphemy, the definition of it is the act or offense of speaking sacrilegiously about God or sacred things. Profane talk. Okay? That's a general definition. Jesus did this by claiming that he was God. Now, under normal circumstances, we could say that any man that claims to be equal with God is indeed guilty of blasphemy. The problem is that when the man is actually God, he's not committing blasphemy. He's speaking truth, and uh, as Jesus uh, is and was. Now, many today will try to make the claim that there are no blasphemy laws today, and good riddance, right? People can and do walk around using the Lord's name in vain as a curse word, and rarely does anyone even blink, especially in the, in the trades. When you're, when you're a blue-collar worker, this, this happens all the time, right? But the expression goes, you can always tell who the God, small g, who the God of the system is by what you are not allowed to say. Why? Let me say that again. You can always tell who the God of the system is by what you are not allowed to say. Because, why is this? Because there are always blasphemy laws. There's always blasphemy laws. What is sacred to any society is that which is not allowed to be challenged. It's not allowed to be said out loud. It's not allowed to be talked about in any negative way whatsoever, especially in political discourse. Our lawmakers here have created new blasphemy laws under the guise of hate speech. Hate speech laws are blasphemy laws. That's what they are. To stand on a street corner today and proclaim repentance and faith in Jesus is to risk arrest and imprisonment. Many in our society today would seek to lay hands on you, to arrest you, simply for preaching the gospel. But here John tells us that no one laid a hand on him. There was a will to lay a hand on him. They wanted to. We'll see in verse 32, well, we see in verse 32 that the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. But by the last day of the feast, as we're going to see in a couple weeks, two or three days from this day, Jesus is still a free man. He's still walking around. He's preaching and teaching. So what was the problem? The scriptures tell us, because his hour had not yet come. It wasn't his time. God is sovereign over all. He is sovereign over time. He is sovereign over all things. Nothing happens in this life, in all of creation, without God ordaining it to be so. Jesus did indeed go to the cross where he bled and died for the sins of the world, but it didn't happen one second earlier than it was supposed to. It didn't happen one second later than it was supposed to. It happened precisely when it was ordained to take place. The will of man is one thing, but it is nothing compared to the will of God. God's will will be done on earth 
as it is in heaven. Man may plan, man may scheme, man may will, but God sets the path. Over and over again we see in Scripture where man plans, where man schemes, yet God thwarts, God frustrates, God plans, and His plans always, always, always prevails. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. Remember that? What you meant for evil, God meant for good, says Joseph to his brothers who planned first to kill him and then ended up selling him into slavery. More on that later. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Verse 31. Why do we preach Jesus when we are threatened with arrest? Why do we preach the gospel when we are all too often maligned and hated for it? Because it's not always a bad reaction. So we had two reactions to the preaching of Jesus by Jesus. We have, let's kill him, let's arrest him. And then we have this. Here we have a little light of hope. Jesus preaches, many, maybe even most of the Jerusalemites reject him and despise him. But here we have the other side of the coin, don't we? Yet many believed in him. That's what it's all about, folks. My sheep hear my voice. My sheep hear my voice and they what? And they come. They come to love Jesus as you and I do. How did we come to love Jesus? By somebody. Maybe it was a friend. Maybe it was a parent. Maybe a spouse. Maybe even a total stranger stepped out of their comfort zone. They took a risk, taking a chance in obedience to the Lord to preach the good news to all creatures that included you, sharing the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ with you. And here you are. Earlier on, the people started to wonder what the issue was. Why weren't the authorities who liked to talk tough while Jesus was in Galilee, why weren't they doing something about him now? They were guessing that maybe some of them were starting to doubt. Maybe they were no longer sure. Maybe they were considering the claims of Christ. We see that this was not the case, as they were still trying to arrest him. But regardless, many of the people of Jerusalem listened to what Jesus was teaching and preaching and came to the conclusion that Jesus was who he said he was. After all, who will do more signs than what Jesus has done to this point? People were well aware of Jesus, what Jesus could do, and what he had done to this point. Jesus had done one miracle after another, healing the sick, feeding the thousands, casting out demons. On top of that, he was teaching and preaching, making outrageous claims about himself. Jesus didn't just talk the talk, of course, he was walking the walk, and people noticed. They were waiting for the Messiah. You must remember that. They were waiting for the Messiah. And here was a man that was doing things and saying things that no one had ever done before. Not like this. Right? What more evidence was needed? 
What more would the Messiah do than what Jesus was doing? To ask the question is to answer it. Nothing. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. The hearts of the people were starting to turn. And quickly to my last point. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me and will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? Verses 32 to 36. Much, this, this in itself could be another whole sermon. Much can be said about these verses, but I'm going to sum them up in the following way. Jesus was standing in front of the authorities of the holy city, Jerusalem. He is calling them to believe upon him, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God. His time has not yet come to be put on the cross, but that time is quickly coming. The time is coming soon. Jesus was not going to be around much longer, and they had a choice to make. You can repent and believe, or you can perish in your sins. Those are your options. Repent and believe, perish in your sins. We, you and I here, have the advantage of hindsight. Hindsight's always 2020, they say, where we can read Jesus' warning, we can see the coming destruction of the Jewish temple, we can see the destruction of the city, we can see the hundreds of thousands of deaths that are coming, if not upwards of a million Jews, are going to die in the very near future, that we're going to perish in the years ahead when Rome sacked the city and completely destroyed it. Repent and believe. Jesus will say, How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. You would not come. And soon there will be a time when you won't be able to come, and destruction will be upon you. You see, it'll be too late. Then they shall call upon me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me. Proverbs 1 and verse 28. There is such a thing as finding out the truth too late. We can and often do reject what is right in front of us. And there's a variety of reasons for that. Especially if you're a younger person, I've got time. Right? I've got time. But the truth of the matter is, God is sovereign, and we are not. God knows when our day and last hour is. We do not. The difficulty that we run into, especially for someone like myself, who's a first responder, is that death is not seen by the vast majority of people today. Death is something that happens privately in a way we don't see the body anymore. We don't see anything anymore. It's just, oh, that person's gone, and we... Don't give it a few weeks. We don't think about them anymore. When you're a first responder, you're, resp you're reminded on a constant basis that death happens. And death happens to all ages. To the young people, wear your seatbelt. 
If you don't, you're in a car accident, you can die. It happens, I've seen it. Don't think that you have time. You do not know how much time you have, so act today. The question is, are we going to be like the foolish virgins who didn't plan well? Who didn't purchase enough oil, and when the time ran out, they were locked out. They were knocking on the door. Let us in. It's too late. The Pharisees here were once again thinking Jesus is speaking and teaching in physical terms. Where can he go where we won't find him? The Greeks? We'll find him there. We have people everywhere. But Jesus isn't talking about a physical location. He's not talking about physical things, but he's talking of spiritual things. Jesus is going to the cross, then he will ascend into heaven. In 70 AD, he returns in judgment against Jerusalem, and he destroys the city. He will return again to judge the living in the, uh, living in the dead at his consummation. He bids you to come. He bids you to come. Come before it's too late. So quickly, in a conclusion, kids were doing well. I don't know how to end with an exhortation any better than the one I just gave you. But in my studies this week, I found a quote from J.C. Ryle that was impactful, and I wanted to share it with you. If you've never read J.C. Ryle, I would highly recommend you do so. Ryle was a bishop in the Church of England in the late 1800s, and he wrote several books. My personal favorite of his is simply called Holiness. It's uh, actually one of the discipleship readings and studies that our church will be doing in our discipleship program. So if you haven't read it, you will, eventually. Ryle writes the following. The servants of Christ in every age should treasure up the doctrine before us, he's referring to the sovereignty of God, and remember it in time of need. It is full of sweet, pleasant, and unspeakable comfort to godly persons. Let such never forget that they live in a world where God overrules all times and events, and where nothing can happen but by God's permission. The very hairs of their heads are all numbered. Sorrow and sickness and poverty and persecution can never touch them unless God sees fit. They may boldly say to every cross, Thou couldst have no power against me except it were given thee from above. Then let them work confidently. Confide, with faith. Let them work confidently. They are immortal. Folks, you are immortal. You are immortal until your work is done. Let them suffer patiently, if needs be that they suffer. Their times are in God's hand, Psalm 31, 15. That hand guides and governs, governs all things here below and makes no mistakes. Praise be to God, and amen. Will you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you very much for this day. We thank you that you are sovereign, and that you send your word, you sent your gospel, you've sent Jesus Christ, and that it is our job, it's our turn, as the body of Christ, as ambassadors 
of your gospel to go out into the world and preach the good news to creatures everywhere. Give us the courage and strength to do so this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.